1: Times bestselling and award winning author of kick ass international thrillers. And this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking riding in the butt one word at a time.
0: Taylor, I understand through the digital grapevine that you're becoming sort of a wildlife expert. And you have some <laughs> funny stories to tell about that. <laughs>
1: okay expert might be a little bit misleading. <laughs> domestic domestic foul expert. Okay, so um yeah I do have a funny story to tell. Or at least it's funny of what happened to me. <laughs> um if you've already if you're already reading my Patreon post, if you're already in the Facebook Club fan group, then you're already familiar with this story, but now you get to hear me tell it in actual word words and not just in writing. So um About two months ago, a little over two months ago, I brought home four baby geese. I've wanted geese for a long time. Um, As I've talked about on this show before, I'm kind of transitory. Like, I don't really have a home home. And um, so there's one of the places where I stay has a lot of land. And so it's outdoors. And that's where I go to kind of get my mental health, uh, you know, my brain just calmed down. I do so much better when I'm away from the city. And so... um, the problem is, the other places where I'm staying are not places where you can just have little geese running around. So um, when I bought these geese, I knew that I would be taking them with me um, wherever I went <laughs> for a while. I did not realize how fast they were going to grow. So they grew really fast, and within a few weeks, um, I could, I just couldn't anymore. They, they were, they'd outgrown the largest possible tote I could buy to to carry them with me. So um, to, to keep them outside knowing that I wasn't going to be there all the time. Um, so, you know, if I'm there, I can step outside. I can be outside a lot, work outside, whatever, and keep an eye on them. But, um, because they're still small and out there, there's a lot of predators, hawks in the daytime. There's like domestic dogs are one of the biggest uh, risks for little birds that don't fly. Um, and you know, and at night there's bobcats and coyotes and whatever. So, Knowing that I wasn't going to be there, uh, there was electric. I got electric fencing set up for them, and uh, so that's where I was keeping them in this electric fencing, and so that's kind of like their home, which they escape out of sometimes. It's a whole other story on its own. But anyway, um, so the thing about geese is they 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 imprint, right? So. They the imprint on like, the biggest thing they see when, once they hatch, and they're like, oh, you're mom. So for the longest time, I was mom <laughs> to these guys, and they would follow me around, and it's, it's, whole, it's so hilarious. They, they, they talk. like You talk to them, they got to talk back, right? And, um, and, and they recognize you. But what I learned over time was that they don't really recognize you so much as they recognize your voice. They're not real good at recognizing faces, so we had a cold snap out there, and I had um, I was wearing a hat, and when I went to go see them, they like freaked out, like who Who the hell are you? Get away from me, you monster! And so that's when I realized that they didn't they don't know me. They know my voice. Then they know me without a hat or whatever, right? So that's the first little put a pin in it thought you gotta know about them. The other thing is they're not incredibly uh, smart in terms of putting themselves up into safety at night. Like, so they'll just settle down in a little goose pile, all four of them, wherever they are at night. And at least they're in that fence, but I've got them a house to live in quote unquote house. And so I go out and I'd put them up at night. And so this one night um, is getting pretty late. And we had this massive, massive storm roll through, like just, just splitting the heavens open and water just pouring down. And it's around midnight, maybe a little later. And I'm thinking, okay, I'd already put the geese up, but they can be kind of naughty. And they, they come back out a few times. And I was like, knowing them, they're probably out and they're probably just getting drenched. And it wouldn't normally be a problem. They're geese, right? Waterfowl, except that they still don't all have their feathers. Their their full feathers haven't come in yet, which means they can get chilled and die. And it was a cold night. Like it was a cold front that had moved in. And so I go, okay. So I go and I get, you know, mud boots on and a big, huge rain slicker and a flashlight. And sure enough, They're just like these ragamuffin little things wandering around in the yard all dazed and confused. Like, what is this wet (laughs) water and massive noise and light and whatever? It's like, okay, normally it's real easy to put them up. They, you know, they don't go into their house by themselves. But as soon as they see me coming, they just line up and waddle all in and it's done. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll just get them in there. It's so much water. I mean, it's like Equatorial Guinea. Africa level of water coming down from the sky. And just being outside, just taking steps, I'm getting drenched. Like I've got this massive rain slicker on, but my it only covers to my thighs. And I've got mud boots on, but it only covers to my shins. And so any part that's not between the mud boots and the slicker is just getting drenched already. And so I'm like, OK, I got to get the electric fence off so I don't shock myself getting into it. And I go in there thinking this is going to be easy. I'll just scoot them on. And they take one look at me. This padded, coated monster coming in out of the dark, and they go, and they freak out, and they go four different directions, running around in circles, like trying to get as far away from me as they possibly can because, you know, I'm going to eat them, right? I'm the, the wolf coming in out of the dark. They have no idea who I am. I can't take off my hat. I can't take off my coat. I'm getting drenched, and it's like trying to chase... Hard cats, very very flappy, shrieky, wet water flinging everywhere. Cats, and I don't know how I, I I like you know basically got to the point where I was like, forget this, and I just would like scoop them up and toss them in, and, and scoop it up and toss them in, and the as soon as I toss them in, they'd still be freaking out, and so they'd run back out. Oh. <laughs> it was just like this, this comedic mad chase from from you know a movie with that Benny, whatever music playing in the background, you know? And I finally like, okay, I got to make sure the flashlight's off. I've got to turn off the light and just kind of push them all in there. I finally got them in there and I go back inside and I'm just from head to toe. Like even the part that's under the slicker is wet because I've I've sweat so much (laughs) through the exertion of trying to get these guys put up. So that's my,
0: my goose story. Oh my gosh. So parenting is parenting is hard no matter what you're parenting i guess
1: <laughs> it, it, it it's yes but there's so much
0: satisfaction <laughs> <laughs> okay so this week's topic it comes from you finishing as a part of your book club that you're doing on on patreon comes with comes along with you finishing the informationist and so you had a couple of observations
1: Yes, I finally read one of my own books. I feel so proud of me. Um, I, I learned things going back, seeing the difference between then and now. And every once in a while, I come across something and I'm like, oh, that was very clever. I didn't don't know, don't know how I knew how to do that back then. Um, a lot of stuff, most of the time when I'm reading this, it's like, oh, you know, how I would do it differently. But every once in a while, I come across something that really works. And I was like, oh, OK. And there were two. in in these final chapters that I was like, this is definitely worth talking about. So the two subjects, and they're both small, so they're not going to be like lots of talking about each one. But the first one is how sometimes less can be more in in writing. And the second one is in using callbacks, which is like something that you say, wording or phrasing that you use at one point of the book, and then you call back to that, as a reference later on in the story, and how powerful that can be in endearing the reader to your characters. So, um, yeah, those are the two that I wanted to discuss.
0: All right, so what do what do you want to start with?
1: Let's do less is more. That's the first one. It's gonna be shorter, I think. So there's this scene in the informationist, I forget exactly what chapter it is, but it takes place on a trawler, a ship, and it involves three characters. And there's been a tragic incident. Anybody who's read this book knows exactly what it's that incident. We just, everybody knows what it is. Um, But I'm not going to say it here in the hopes of avoiding any spoilers. So anyway, we have um, Monroe, Vanessa Michael Monroe, who's our main character. And we have Miles Bradford, who's the guy who was with her when this incident happened. And they are on a smaller boat, and they're approaching this trawler, right? Now, Monroe is familiar with the trawler. Um, She knows the crew. She knows—she's been on it before. But Bradford, this is the first time he knows anything about it. Like, he's on this shit, on this little boat, following transponder coordinates. And they've been out on the ocean for three hours before he finally sees the trawler and realizes, oh, this is what we're supposed— to get to. So he has no idea of who's on that ship. He's never heard of the ship. He doesn't know anything about it. And they get there, and Monroe basically goes up the ladder and leaves him. And he has just seen what she's done, and he's worried about her, so severely worried about her. And so he races the rungs to get up there. And by the time he gets to deck, she's already standing on the deck talking to the third character who's kind of like the first mate on the, the equivalent of this, the first mate on this ship. And this, this first mate, his name is George Wheel, he has his back to Bradford. He's facing Monroe. So when Bradford steps onto deck, he does not know who this person is that Monroe is talking to. He can only see her face. And from her face, he can tell that there's a potential fight about to go down, and he wants to stop it. So he basically calls Monroe's name to get her attention, and she turns and looks at him, and here's where, it's just a few lines of text, that's, that's where I'm getting at with the sometimes less is more, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, Bradford maintained eye contact until the tension of the moment diffused, and then he turned toward the man, and when he did, a shock of recognition ran through him. He could see the same written on the other man's face. Bradford nodded, George. We all said, Miles. And Monroe said, fuck. <laughs> and that's it. That is it. From those few sentences, we basically are left to deduce that Bradford and we all know each other from some time before the story. But it's never explored. We, we, it never comes up again. We never It's never explored, never expounded upon, never discussed. And that right there is the beauty of less and more. And the reason why it works in this particular instance is because Whether these men know each other before or not isn't really critical to the plot. Like It has no bearing whatsoever on any decision or point that happens moving forward. So when I did it that way, I did it specifically for a couple—it solved two problems for me. And the first is that in that scene, whatever took place before it and whatever took place after it, I didn't have the time to introduce the characters. Like, it was this really tense, rapidly moving situation. And to stop and introduce the characters or introduce, explain through characters' point of view, the whole seeing somebody for the first time or whatever, it was going to lug the story down with unnecessary details. It needed to move really fast. But stopping to explain that connection where the you know inside somebody's head they have to have this oh moment of like recognizing this person from before and kind of explaining their history that have the same negative effect as having the characters meet it was there was no space in that scene for introductions or reminiscing it just needed to move so doing it that way when you read it, like, if you don't know anything else... And it, I forgot about this. So for me, coming into it, it, was like reading it clean. Like, I I had never read it before. I, I had no idea what was about to happen. And it took me by surprise. And that's what made me go, oh, my God, I, I've got to talk about this. And that is because... So reading it like that, it created this, ugh moment, moment. Like, or at least me. I felt really clever for realizing what had just happened. Like, I got it. I got that these two guys... Um, they knew each other. Without it having to be explained to me, without anything, I just got it. And then it moved on. It happens really fast. It's done. It's over. I'm right back into the story. But that sense of having caught something, feeling clever for having caught it, that stayed with me. So it actually the enjoyment of everything that else that followed in that chapter, because I'm already now in this, like, sort of you get this little ping of euphoria or this, this dopamine hit from that, and then it, that's going to bleed over to the rest. So when you have a situation like this where you you give just enough information for the readers to figure it out, some will, and that's great. It's going to be great for them. Some won't, but they're not going to realize that they didn't. So there's no, there's no negative. It's just like, oh, OK, and you move on. So I, I've never seen that to that extreme anywhere else, not even in my own writing, which is why it, it stood out to me as an example, like an extreme example to use of how sometimes less really can be more when you're writing about something that isn't critical to the story, the plot itself.
0: And I remember that line from the first time I read the book. And so I was one of the people who got it, apparently, because it stuck in my mind. And when we were talking about this earlier and, you know, you you read through that bit where um, Monroe realizes what's going on and and exclaims, it's – it, it, it reminded me of it. And I just remember at the time, I don't remember like thinking anything about it. I, I guess I kind of thought we'd learn more about it later. And then I just forgot about it because the story went on. I do want to ask you a question though. You yeah. said there was no space in the scene for any explanation there. What, what exactly do you mean there? And how do you determine that there's no space in the scene?
1: I don't think that you can make a rule and say this is how you do it or this is how you don't. But you have this in this particular scene, there was it's a very heightened emotion. Like you're you're coming out of basically shock because of what had happened in the incident before. And that emotion is building where Monroe, the main character, you don't know what she's going to do. You don't know what she's planning you have these two characters talking about her. Like, from there, she heads up to the, to the pilot house, and Bradford asks Wheel, does she know what she's doing up there? Because Bradford doesn't even... I mean, he knows Monroe in the present. He doesn't know anything about her past. And Wheel knows Monroe f- from the stories of her past, but he doesn't know who she is in the present. So it's this sort of exchange about her behind her back. And to... To keep that emotional connection, that tension about her and focused on her, I didn't want to distract from that. I want to—anytime you veer off to explain something, if it's not about the actual emotional focal point of that scene, you're going to pull that power away from it, right? So I, w- I needed, wanted— at least in retrospect, that's what I see that I was doing, I wanted that emotional focal point to stay on her. I wanted the, the spotlight to follow her and not to have to go off for a little side tangent on these other guys. Now, if, for example, I needed to come back to that and explain it, and I would do it later. Like, after Bradford has maybe had a chance to talk to Monroe again and they're having a conversation, he could have said... Or she could have said to him, what was that all about? And he could have said, well, you know, we served together at, you know, at whatever, three years back. And, you know, he was the assistant. To, I don't know. However you want to do it, right? Build their backstory. And it would have been a time to approach that, but not there in that scene. Okay. But because it wasn't critical to knowing or understanding, there was no reason to come back and address it again.
0: Okay, I got you, and that makes perfect sense. So there was a certain emotional level that you had set there, and any additional words would have changed that level.
1: Yes, but not just the additional words. It's like if you have a spotlight, right, and you're shining that spotlight on your character, mm-hmm. and and following them across the stage, and all of a sudden you swing that spotlight over to the other side of the stage and say, now here's Bradford and Wheel, and let's tell you a little bit about their story, and then you try and swing that spotlight back over to your character, you've lost the momentum you've lost the emotional thread and you have to pick it back up again. So you didn't want that interruption of swinging focus from her to something else that didn't, wasn't anything to do with her.
0: Okay. And was that, I got the impression from the way you told the story that it was not intentional. You just knew that you wanted, you wanted that bit to be in there and you didn't want to explain it right there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I'm kind of analyzing it in, in retrospect but I just, I guess, on an instinctual level, even back then, I understood the distraction, the the interruption to the the emotional component of it that would exist by either a explaining or b other explaining.
0: Okay, all right, and then we had a second uh, a second subtopic for today, which is the idea of the callback, and when you first. Mentioned when we were talking about this before we started recording, you said a callback. I didn't know what you were talking about. So you sort of explained it before. Um, So let's get into the the example of the callback.
1: Okay, so I don't know if callback is like a technical term for something like this. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you the example, and then we can discuss where I'm coming from with this. But callbacks or whatever you want to call them. It's like how you can use that to create a sense of intimacy between the reader and the character. And it's like giving the reader and character, it's like having the reader and characters be part of the same sort of private language or inside joke. You're, you're opening a small window where the reader feels bonded because they have this information that they nobody else who hadn't been privy to this conversation or scenario with these readers would understand what this meant. So, in this, um, the so callback is saying it once and then referring back to it at another time, right? So in this, we have two instances that it's going to be used first, and then the callback. And then the first time, um, it's when Bradford and Monroe meet, and it's a bit of a power play going on because. They're both really capable, independent characters, and Monroe has always worked alone. She doesn't want anyone working with her, and she—Bradford's kind of been forced upon her, and she sees him more as a babysitter or a minder, even though she knows that in his own right, he is a very, very capable person. It's that he's being forced upon her to accompany her that makes her resent him. So she's started this off already, this first interaction, by, by testing him, by, by sending him to some place that she knows is going to be really hard for him to find and to see how he goes about finding it, if he asks for help or comes on foot or whatever. So he finally gets there. He's just a little bit late. And um, they're sitting there talking at the table. Uh, it's a five-star restaurant. It's kind of tucked away in this residential neighborhood. And so she, she already has a sense of who he is on paper. Like she's read his file and everything. So during this meeting, she hands him a copy of her own file. They, it can, she got it from the guy who hired her. She got his file from the guy who hired her. She hands it to him, her file, and basically tells him, you know, I've already read yours. So it's only fair that you have mine. At which point, <laughs> Bradford tells her he doesn't need it because he's the one who assembled it, which is like, ooh, burn... So then the power play really begins. And this is, you know, her mind against his. They're sitting across from each other at a a table at a five-star restaurant. And so referring to her own file that she has with him having been, she knows now that he's the one who's assembled it. She tells him that there are things missing out of it, to which he says that he knows that he left them out on purpose. And here we get the conversation. And so she says... It's interesting that you'd find psychiatric evaluations to be so much less pertinent than a history of broken bones. I would have included them if they were accurate, he said, but you and I both know they aren't. You're not only a hired gun, you're also a psychologist. That's very impressive. He smiled and leaned back. Am I wrong? I don't know, you're the expert. And then she mirrored his shift in seating position, So, she said, matching his smile and waiting half a beat, what's your theory on the scars? Apparently you don't believe I'm suicidal or prone to cutting. Would it matter if I did, he asked? Actually, yes, thank you for asking, it matters a lot. It determines what types of reciprocal behavior I can expect from you when we find ourselves under stress. Then no, he said, I don't believe it. It contradicts everything I know about you. If you were planning to end your life, you'd do it in a shootless base jump off Angel Falls. So Angel Falls itself is not like she has this particular place set out that, oh, I'm going to go kill myself there. It's more metaphorical in the sense that it's the highest waterfall in the world. So, you know, she'd go to some place and base jump off without a parachute, basically take a flying leap. So he knows he knows her well enough to know that if she's going to kill herself, she's going to do it in some thrill seeking way, not just go slit her wrists. So that's the first time that they met, right? Whole story happens between them. And by the time we get to the end, I mean, like, they start off as a little bit combative towards each other. There gets really aggressive between them in the middle where it's she thinks that he's maybe the one who's betrayed her and it gets messy. And then it moves into he saved her life and she knows that he actually genuinely cares about her um and that he's not the reason behind all these bad things that had happened and so they've gotten over almost at the end of the story and here she's telling him as as this it's racing to a conclusion and she's just thrown a sudden change of plans at him they both they they booked flights back to Houston through Paris and she's telling him that she's not going to go with him all the way to Houston that Paris is where she's going to say goodbye and that she doesn't want to do the same thing she always does, which is just basically do her thing and expect him to tag along. She's giving him the information up front because she feels he's earned it. He's deserved it. And he, she's not going to tell him exactly what she's up to because that's for his own safety, but she's basically giving him an olive branch and making peace here and by telling him all of this. And so... He his is how Bradford responds. He struck his boot against the boot heel against concrete floor, repetitive dull taps that filled the silence, then slid down the wall into a squat staring at nothing. I'm not stupid enough to attempt to stand in your way, he said, even though that's feel what I it's what I feel I should do. He looked up. I've just lived through two days of hell with you, Michael. To say I'm concerned is the understatement of the year. You're not planning to go shootless off Angel Falls, are you? So in this scenario, Angel Falls is callback to that private conversation they had. And it's something it's it's a shorthand or a signal between the two of them that only they and the reader are privy to. Right. It's private. And it's like doing that, using that, if he, he, I mean, we could have used other language, right? We could have said, you're not planning to kill yourself, are you? Or you're not planning to end things early, are you? Whatever. But because Angel Falls was language that he'd already used by calling back to that, it creates an intimacy between the characters and it creates an intimacy between the characters and the reader that makes you feel like this is part of you. You're in on this. You understand them. You understand their language. And that is when you're writing that attachment to the characters is what you really want as an author. You want your readers to feel like these characters matter to them. And in this instance, as I'm reading this for the first time in, I don't know, 10 years or whatever, I realize that this callback right there that is a bonding, and not only is, is it Bradford and Monroe bonding, like we've just lived through hell together, the reader is bonding going, you, you've lived through hell with us in this, right? And so that's an example of how callbacks can strengthen that bond between your reader and your characters to where it's really hard to let those characters go because you feel that saying goodbye to them is like, saying goodbye to somebody who knows you or you know them. And I i don't think they are—I think callbacks are something that you have to be really careful with. You, if you start playing with them too much or putting too many in them, it's going to feel very overhand, uh, heavy-handed. It's going to feel overdone. But one or two of them throughout the novel is a bit like, I suppose, theme, where you keep coming back to the same thing over and over, and it gives us this sense of richness or depth— that just the story on its own wouldn't be able to carry.
0: So, Now, was that intentional when you did that?
1: Uh, no. I mean, referring back to Angel Falls, yes. I mean, obviously that was intentional just because as, as I'm writing characters, I'm inside their heads. And so whatever their experiences have been, um, that's what I'm going to draw on. And I was, of course, drawing off that earlier conversation, but I wasn't doing it intentionally, deliberately to use it as a callback. I was doing it because that's what a character like this would have done or said in this particular situation. But analyzing it, <laughs> 10 years removed, I'm like, that was very, very smart to do it that way.
0: <laughs> what a fascinating exercise this has been for you to go go through and read that first book.
1: Yeah, it's been It's been bizarre. Um, good and bad, but yes, definitely interesting.
0: <laughs> and for our listeners, um, why don't we offer a call back to them to come back next Tuesday and hear our next episode? <laughs> You're so
1: good at that. <laughs> yes, guys, why don't you come back next week? I have I have one more subject that I drew from <laughs> the reading the information. I was like, ooh, I want to talk about this. So you got to come back next week for that.
0: Thanks for listening. We will be back in your ear next Tuesday.